Thanks so much. And uh, please do keep your Bibles open there at Ruth chapter 3. What are we to make of this story? Some people have searched it for dating advice for Christians. And what do they find? Well, look at Naomi's words in verse 3. Wash. It's a good start, isn't it? Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. So, so far, so good. Scrub up, look your best, and get out and meet people. This could be, uh, you could use a Christian dating app. Maybe someone should invent one called Threshing Floor. Uh, So far, it's good, but the approach has its limits because we then find the idea of connecting with a potential partner by creeping into their room while they're asleep, uncovering their feet, lying down and waiting for them to wake up. I'm not so sure about that. You know, there, there could be problems. It could lead to the person getting cold feet. Come on. <laughs> to say the least, it would be socially awkward, especially if your potential partner is sleeping at the office like Boaz. Now, this is not dating advice. The key to understanding Ruth chapter 3, as with the rest of the Bible, is to understand the Bible is not fundamentally all about us. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. The Bible is all about God. And that's the key to understanding the Scriptures. It is God's story. It is written to teach us about the living God. One great uh, reformer, John Calvin, said, when we open the Scriptures, it's as if the lips of God open. It has lot, the Bible has lots and lots to say to us about how to live and lots to say to us about ourselves. But the real hero behind every story is the Lord. And we see that today in three points. Ruth's risky move, Boaz's gracious response, and the delicate doctrine of providence. Ruth's risky move, Boaz's gracious response, and the delicate doctrine of providence. So firstly, Ruth's risky move. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. We remember at the start of this book that began with a scene of great catastrophe, of emptiness, of lack, as the family hit a famine in, in the land and they decided to take the drastic move of moving out and going to Moab, which was historically a place of Israel's enemies. as a drastic move, one driven by desperation. And in Moab, things actually went from bad to worse. Because first of all, Naomi's husband died. And then 10 years later, both her sons. These sons were married, but there'd been no children born. So she was left a widow with two widowed daughters-in-law. And we read the poignant scene of how she graciously told them to go back to their own family and said, there's no future with me. But one of them insisted on binding herself to Naomi to care for Naomi uh, with a, a breathtaking pledge a pledge of faith, and that woman's name is Ruth, and she's the one the book is named after. Chapter 1 ended with Naomi saying, don't call me Naomi. That name means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But Naomi, not, who was never rebuked for that, that bitter complaint, in fact, we, we're encouraged to, to learn how to speak like that, Naomi had overlooked that God had already begun to meet her needs 
in the person of Ruth, this young widow who had extraordinary courage and commitment, who went against all conventions and pledged her life to Naomi, one of the most dramatic leaps of faith in the whole Bible. She said, where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. And I will be buried with you. So they returned to Bethlehem together. And chapter 2 from last week, Paddy preached, unfolded what happened after they returned. Ruth went gleaning, which was a practice provided for in the, in the biblical law that the poor of the nation could pick up the bits of uh, crops that were left at the side of the fields, and they then, through that honest labor, could feed themselves. And she just happened to choose the field of a man called Boaz. And it just turned out that this man is actually one of the few people in the world who could help these two widows. And so chapter 2 was like a Disney film where everything's awful, and suddenly it all starts to go great, you know, and the music's playing and people are dancing and it's wonderful. Boaz recognized who Ruth was. He went above and beyond in providing for her. He gave her protection. He gave her advice. He, he provided work. He made sure she had loads of food to take home. But we know, don't we, that real life isn't a Disney film. And neither is the world of the Bible. And so at the end of chapter 2, we're not actually that much further forward than where we began. Look at the end of chapter 2 there. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. So as we come into chapter 3, the harvest is over. These two don't have any other provision. They don't have a bank balance. They don't have social security. They're still living a precarious life. They have enough food until the end of the harvest, but no guarantees for the future. And chapter 2 ends with a very subtle but poignant reminder, she lived with her mother-in-law. That's all they've got now. That's the only family they have left. What on earth are they going to do? Now, the world of Ruth is, the, is a man's world. It was a patriarchal culture. A woman's safety and security, and even her identity, were totally bound up with marriage and family. Women could lose their ancestral land if there was no heir to carry on the family line. So it's very precarious here. They're hanging by a thread. And Boaz, we discover, is technically able to help under the law of the guardian redeemer. The Bible's law had, had stated that a near relative from the same family could step in and redeem the family. He could buy them out by marriage. By marrying them into his own family, he could rescue their line. And Boaz knows that. It's an option but he's not actually legally obligated to do so. He could choose that. And for some reason, he hasn't made the first move. We don't know why. Later, we learn that there's another redeemer who's more closely related. So it might be that Boaz, Boaz assumed that he, that other man, would take care of them. But anyway, Naomi comes up with this bold plan. And have a look at verses 3 and 4. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, what is this about? When we were preparing the series, one of the young chaps who's uh, preaching said to me, I'm just glad I'm not doing chapter 3 and the bit about the feet. And he was right to say so. It looks very strange to us uncovering his feet and lying down. It, is it a bit shady? You know, a bit of a come on? 
What's going on here? Now, uncovering the feet in the ancient world, uncovering and uncovering someone with a garment is, has symbolism of marriage. So she is asking him to marry her. This is effectively a proposal of marriage. It's an invitation. It's very unorthodox uh, for a woman to do this, but it's the last straw, isn't it? Think about the risks. The risks to Ruth. She's going alone to a remote place to a man she doesn't actually know that well. Boaz has got all the power. He's got the social power. He's got the economic power. If he misreads her intentions or if he takes advantage of her, no one will hear her cry. We know from the Bible's history that this was in the time of the judges, a very lawless time, a lot of wickedness. Prostitutes went to the threshing floors at night. What if Boaz got the wrong impression? Then there's a social risk. She's a woman proposing to the man. She's younger, he's older. That gives him all the status and power. She's a refugee on a zero-hours contract. He's a landowner. Why would he be interested? She's from Moab, and Moabite women had a bad reputation. What if Boaz responded with disgust and rejection? Have you ever had that feeling that you've misjudged a potential relationship, and the other person says, oh no, I didn't mean it like that? No one here has ever had that feeling except me. You know, it, it could jeopardize so much, but Ruth again shows immense courage to take the risk. Now, what are we learning here? Being faithful to the promises you've made isn't guaranteed to lead to an easy life. But it is what God calls us to do. Ruth's behavior is driven by her promise to Naomi back in chapter 1. Where you go, I will go. Committed her life to Naomi. And now that promise doesn't lead to a Disney existence. It leads to a place of risk. In other words, becoming a believer, a follower of God, a Christian, doesn't solve all your problems. It may give you a whole bunch of new problems that you didn't even think about before. Following the living God, following Jesus seriously, is not entering into a Hollywood Disney existence. You have to take some risks to keep your promises sometimes. Taking this risk has the power of this promise behind it. In the midst of a chaotic time, Naomi needed her. Ruth made the promise without knowing what would come. Pastor Jeffrey White from Manhattan says, a promise is making an appointment with yourself in the future. You're making a note in your diary to yourself and saying, I will meet you there. A pledge for the future that says to another person, I will be there for you. And when we make a promise, we are most human and most free. No animal ever makes a promise for you, you know. Animals don't make promises, but a human can because God has made us like this. So are we ready to take risks for others in order to keep our commitment? That honors God, and it is what Ruth teaches us because God is like that himself. He keeps his word even when it hurts. He never breaks a promise. Ruth's risky move leads to the second part of the story, which is Boaz's gracious 
response. Thankfully, Boaz understands the situation. In verse 8, in the middle of the night, he maybe turns over, or maybe his feet got a bit chilly, and he suddenly sees, whoa, what? there's a woman lying down at my feet. And he's quite startled, but he asks an obvious question in verse 9, who are you? And she blurts out the whole thing. I mean, Ruth is not coy. If Naomi's advice could sound like a little bit flirtatious, Ruth just blasts the whole thing out there. I am your servant, Ruth, she says in verse 9. Spread the corner of your garment over me, a symbol of protection of marriage, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. She's just very, very blunt. This is what it's about. This is about marriage, and I'm reminding you that in God's word, you could do this. Ruth pins everything on this principle from the Bible. God has provided a guardian redeemer, and this man could fulfill the role. Now, Boaz sees all this, he understands it, and he responds magnificently. Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he, he replied. This is not flirtatious language. My daughter is a very affectionate way of speaking to a woman. Uh, it's like uh, saying, my dear, it's kind, it's affectionate. And he uses this key word, kindness. This kindness, he says, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not to run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will, I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. And then he explains that there is another guardian redeemer who is closer. So he, that guy uh, has the, the priority in the, in, the, in the provision. But Boaz gives his word that he will f- prosecute this quickly as, as much as he can. And notice he is generous. In verse 15, he brings, gets her to bring a shawl and he fills it with barley, again to provide for the family. He is righteous. Verse 14, he protects her reputation, says uh, no one must know that a woman comes to the, came to the threshing floor. And he gives his word, but he's obedient to God's law. Now, we Western readers, we're kind of pre-programmed to, to see this story in a certain way. We live in a culture that's very individualistic. Uh, and we live in a culture that's obsessed with romance and, and a culture that's frankly obsessed with sex. And therefore, we can actually misread this story because we think it's all about Ruth and Boaz. But it's not. This is a love story, but not the love story we expected. The real love story isn't about Ruth and Boaz. It's about Ruth's love for Naomi her widowed mother-in-law. It's about Boaz's love for their family, which cost him. And it's about God's love for his people, reflected in, both, in all of the characters. You see that? That's really what true love's about. Let me tell you what it cost Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He married Ruth, thereby taking all the obligations of their lives upon himself. That is a lifelong commitment. What would this be like? Imagine that a poor refugee family have fled Ukraine and they've come to the UK and they end up in Chesington. It's not hard to imagine, is it? We've had refugee families in this church in the past. This family are asylum seekers. 
They are very poor. Do you know asylum seekers, uh, uh, the, the government allowance for asylum seekers is ridiculously small. It's 30-odd pounds a week or something. They have virtually nothing. They've suffered bereavement. And you get to know this family. You, be, you begin to realize the depth of their needs. So you invite them to your home. You cook them dinner. You, you start to introduce them to the church and to the center and to perhaps some free English classes. And all of those things you could do would be a very good thing and a very worthy thing. But what Boaz does goes way beyond that. He brings them into his family permanently. They don't just come for dinner, they come to stay. When they need money or food or clothes or healthcare, Boaz is responsible to help. They move into the house. He takes the risk. Not just because, not because he's fallen head over heels for Ruth, but because his character is shaped by the kindness of God. He is moved to compassion to reach out and bring this family in. That is the only reason why a senior man of that community would make such a commitment. He's shaped by the kindness of God. Grace. We haven't even mentioned the social stigma that can come from marrying a Moabite widow. But Boaz knows God, and that will overcome that. His character is shaped by God's kindness. How much is our character, friends, being formed by God's gracious dealings with us? When you were far from him, when you were living in rebellion and sin, hating God, he came after you and sought you out. God has forgiven you everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do. He, he constantly is patient and kind with you. He deals with you out of mercy and love all the time. How much does that shape our character, friends? For example, in our social world, our resources, whatever we have, are we shaped by God's kindness to share what we have with the needy? Because that's what God's kindness did to Boaz. Ruth's risky move, Boaz's gracious response, and then finally, the delicate doctrine of providence. Providence is a teaching, biblical teaching, that God is sovereign over all things and he provides for all things in the world. Why is it delicate? because it requires a careful balance of two truths. On the one hand, providence says that God controls and oversees, governs all things. God is sovereign. And yet at the same time, the Bible affirms that human responsibility is real. Both of these teachings live in tension in the doctrine of providence. And if you stray too much to one side or the other, you hit problems. If you stray too much and say, well, God's got it in control and I'm not responsible, you become passive. But if you stray too much into human responsibility and think, I'm not sure God really has got it in control, it leads to panic. You need both of them in, in, a, in your biblical understanding. And we see this doctrine is at work all through the book of Ruth. They happen to come back at barley harvest time. Ruth happens to go into a particular field. It's the perfect field to go into. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Boaz goes to the town, he arrives just at the right moment that the guardian redeemer comes. All of these details look like coincidences, but not to the eyes of faith. When you know God, you know that he's constantly at work, and he's always at work for the good of his people. 
providence. What does this mean for us? It means that God cares for you even when you don't see dramatic things happen. There are no miracles in the book of Ruth. God doesn't speak directly in this book, you know. It's, it's like life as we experience it. But the author shows us subtly that God is at work all the time behind the scenes. He is the director of all our stories. And that shows that our lives matter because they matter to God, even the small details. God is at work even down to the level of detail of which field Ruth happens to walk into. God has ordained the great things of history and the small details. So let's be attentive to his work in our lives. We need to be much more attentive. He's working. So much of our life seems mundane and trivial. So much of our life is repetitive, isn't it? We are tempted to view our lives as boring and irrelevant. The real action always seems to be happening somewhere else. So we can be discontented and bored and sometimes unfaithful. But we have misunderstood the way that reality works because in God's world, everything is connected. He cares about the details of your life your decisions, your faith, your obedience really matters. And we see this in the whole of Ruth, but especially in chapter 3. Taking the risky step, responding in grace, all of this is being woven together into a story where God will get the glory. So what this means is that faithful obedience to God is vital no matter how trivial it seems. Boaz is faithful He's obedient. He takes what God's word says and he, he follows it through to the end. The small details of life honor God. Let me just give you one example from the book of how what God is doing in the world and our life are connected. It's a word, wings. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. This is a, from last week. Chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's the image of God as like a mother bird and protecting the young. You know, the, bird, the little chicks get under the wings and nothing can touch them. And that mother bird will lay down her life to, to serve those chicks. So God here, Boaz asks for the, God's blessing and rich reward to be upon this, this woman and, and that she can take shelter under God's wings. Now, there's only one other place where that word wing occurs, and it's in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the wing of your garment over me. can also be translated corner. So the two occurrences of the words wing in this book are fascinating because they combine God's protection with Boaz's kindness. In other words, Boaz becomes the means by which God saves the family. You may think your life is very small and unimportant, and in the great story of history, it is. You and me were just a pixel on the screen. But in God's eyes, your small story is part of the greatest story ever told because God is weaving your life 
into a tapestry, the story that culminates in the renewal of all things, when God makes all things new, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and brings in the world to come. And he knows you by name. This odd couple, Ruth and Boaz, we find out in chapter 4, had a baby boy. And that boy became part of the family line that led to King David, who led the people to greatness. But more than that, that charming romance actually contributed beyond David to the line of the Messiah, Jesus himself, the one who will redeem his people forever. Ruth and Boaz are a link in a chain that leads to Jesus Christ and the salvation of the nations. So can we start to think about our lives as small and insignificant as they seem, can we start to think about our promises, our character, in light of the grace and providence of God? Is he asking you to take a risk this week in order to keep your promise to be there for someone like Ruth? Is he leading you to a costly commitment this week so to provide for someone in great need like Boaz? Is he working in your life to be a person of obedient trust so that God, through you, can fulfill his great purposes in the world? He is. Let's pray. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Heavenly Father, thank you that in this charming story we get glimpses, hints, um, reflections of just who you are, uh, your tenderness towards the needy, the weak, the immigrant, the refugee, the outsider. You provided for them in your law, and here you provided for them in the family of Boaz. Please prompt us now as we reflect and as we sing and as we pray and go home to see where you want us to walk in obedience to this teaching. Amen. Amen.